So uh, this evening, um, Jaya and I will be uh, reflecting on a, a teaching called the Four Noble Truths, which uh, gives a, a wider context to to what we're doing today. Um, but I'd like to begin really with just some words of uh, appreciation, you know, for all of the uh, efforts in your practice today. And uh, it's uh, very inspiring to be practicing with you, to be here with you. And uh, it's a beautiful thing to come on retreat. And it's also at times difficult, at times challenging. And uh, that's because the usual ways in which we deal with our own feelings of distress or difficulty um, many of them aren't here. Uh, often in life, if there's a, a feeling of something not being quite right, we might be looking at the internet, phoning a friend, watching some TV, picking up a book, uh, before we've even quite noticed how that was driven uh, by a sense of something not quite being okay. And so here on retreat, that aspect of our experience can really stand out. And we can learn so much from this environment. And it's really so uh, helpful and valuable and rich to, to be here. And so again, really to appreciate your efforts and to wish you well with it all. Um, I don't know how it lands with you to hear that, but it can be so helpful to know uh, that for all of us, there can be times when it's tough, difficult, challenging retreats. Uh, it's a very helpful thing to know, otherwise we can turn it in on ourselves. What is it about me? And there's a, a wider lesson there for uh, other struggles we can experience in life where something that is difficult, challenging, becomes amplified when the sense of what does that mean about me becomes loud. So this uh, teaching on the Four Noble Truths is a teaching on a sense of struggle, difficulty uh, that we can feel in our lives at times and how we can find, we might say freedom from that, we might say freedom within that, different ways of thinking, looking at it. And uh, I wanted to, before I begin reflecting on the Four Noble Truths, slightly widen out um, some thoughts about this. And um, at the moment, I'm really fascinated by a whole question of what we might call well-being. So what is it uh, that really serves our well-being, we might say our flourishing happiness in a, in a deep sense? If we're thinking about uh, our lives as a whole, what are the kind of supportive conditions that feed that. And uh, one of the things I do at home in Nottingham, one of my little treats is to uh, wander around the bookshop and the bookshop that I go to has a little coffee shop within it. And so anyway, it's just the kind of thing I do when I have some spare time to look at um, after myself. And um, 
I notice that this concern with well-being is not just mine. I mean, actually, if you just look around all these book bookshops, there's just countless of these different accounts of it. So there's a, a more social sense of questioning that. And uh, many of these things can be so interesting. So, for instance, there was one book that I was looking at that was talking about the importance of getting really good quality sleep, taking time to rest, to move the body, keep active, um, and to to be really mindful about what we eat. You know, I was talking about those. Uh, there's a, another teaching I find helpful, uh, which offers what are called the five ways of well-being. And I can write these on the board tomorrow so that you don't need to to remember them, but I find them just such a helpful little checklist. So it's to connect with others, to learn new things, to be active, to notice the world around you, and to give. Yeah, to connect with others, to learn new things, to be active, to notice the world around you, and to give. And on one hand, that's a very simple framework, but it can be really helpful. So, for instance, when people retire, retirement can be a difficult transition for people, and it may well be, oh, they're not connecting with others as much, or they're not as active as they used to be, or the sense of being able to give to others isn't there. Or maybe when someone, you know, may have had this experience of, you go to university for the first time, and suddenly you don't know as many people. And so the connections you had at home aren't there so strong. There can be feelings of uh, difficulty around that. Um, I uh, had a very dear friend of mine uh, live near me in Nottingham. And we used to, every Wednesday, we'd spend two hours, what do they say, putting the world to rights. And then he moved. <laughs> and uh, it's just interesting, just a little change like that. Gosh, I haven't got my Wednesday catch-up with Michael. What am I going to do? Uh, and so it, it can be a useful thing to kind of bear in mind all of the things that impact uh, on our sense of well-being. So it's a complex thing, yeah? multi-layered conditions that support us. And if you think about all of the aspects of well-being that are here now so that I can give the talk and you can listen to the talk. You know, a basic sense of political safety around us is necessary. I mean, we can get quite unaware of that, but as you know, there are many places in the world where people wouldn't be able to do this. And uh, I trust that your belly is full or full enough but if these things were absent, we couldn't begin to attend to these things. Yeah? So there's so many different conditions that support our, our well-being. And this teaching on the Four Noble Truths, I think we can situate within a reflection on those wider conditions. Yeah? And it focuses in, I think, on Maybe something even more universal than all of that, even more fundamental than all of that. So nothing in the Four Noble Truths denies those kind of things I've spoken about, but perhaps is really getting absolutely to the heart of this question of suffering and the end of suffering.
So the first of these truths is uh, the truth of dukkha. And dukkha is a word we can translate as suffering, unsatisfactoriness, maybe struggle, feeling ill at ease. And uh, has so many different elements to it. So we might think of quite gross and obvious sufferings, you know, if you're in a lot of physical pain. But it can also include something really subtle. It might be something like your last day of holiday. Imagine you've been on a beautiful holiday and it just feels so wonderful. You feel more peaceful than you have been for ages. And you're on the beach and you're walking along and you can feel the sand under your feet. And the sun is just setting and everything feels, ah. And then the thought is, tomorrow, airports, queues, baggage check-in, security checks, airport food, then back at work or back to study. And that kind of ache in your heart, it's not going to last. Yeah, it's not going to last. And dukkha, and also we can see as this sense that uh, a sense of completion, a sense of complete happiness, somehow is always just around the corner. I don't know if you've noticed that feeling that we can project it into the future. So at the moment, things aren't quite right, we might think. But don't worry, because when I get X or Y or Z, then everything will be okay. So there can be quite a sense of time there, really. And the X and the Y and the Z could be all kinds of things. So it might be, ah, well, at the moment I'm single, but I have my eye on that person, and once I get together with them, I'll be really happy, and we'll have a great relationship, and then everything will be okay. And then we notice other times in our lives, maybe we're in a relationship that's feeling really tricky and difficult and not really supportive and we think ah oh, I just need to get out of this relationship and once I'm single again then I'll have my own time and I won't have all this stress and hassle and then everything will be alright or at the moment I've just got so many exams to do and I've got to get all this revision get it all juggled and sorted and get all that done but when the exams are finished ah oh, and I don't know if you've had that experience, but again, very common that that experience can be somewhat of an anti-climax. You know, that the uh, reflection here is that we can project a sense of completion, some kind of permanent satisfactory state that we're going to achieve, and it feels a little bit like sand running through our fingers. It never quite arrives. This is dukkha. This is dukkha. And uh, the Buddha describes this in many, many ways, but one that really stands out for me uh, is that it's dukkha to not get what we want. And it's dukkha to get what we don't want. It's such a general way of putting it, but if you think about it, it doesn't matter who you are in the world, how much wealth or fame or power you have, there's something more fundamental about being a human being, being a mortal being in an uncertain world that means that's just a given. And we can juggle the edges, of course. We can make choices and, you know, okay, I'll have more of this and less of that and more of this and less of that. 
But ultimately, uh, this life is not controllable. So we can say, okay, I'm signing up to all of the pleasure and all of the praise and all of the success. And no thanks very much. We won't have any pain. We won't have any criticism. We won't have any failure. Uh, we're just going to have one side of the coin. <laughs> yeah. And when I put it like that, you realize, of course, that this ultimately is an impossible project, but trying to do it is stressful. Another image that often comes to my mind is like trying to spin all the plates. So there you've got your relationship plate going, that's great, that's going pretty well. And then maybe your work plate, okay, yeah, that's, that's quite good. And how are things going with the family? Oh, not so bad at the moment. And how's the homes, housing situation? Oh, that's pretty good as well. Now, if you imagine, I don't know how many plates we would have in our life, but if you get all, let's say you have eight plates, then maybe, if you're really fortunate, sometimes when suddenly they're all spinning at once, and you think, yeah. But spinning plates wobble. That's their nature. So even in that elusive moment where they're all going, there might be a little feeling of, oh, can I keep them all going? And how's that going to be? So there are two ways you can hear this. And the difference between these two ways is of enormous significance. So I'm really going to emphasize this. One way you can hear this is that this is a rather depressing realization, something rather despairing. And so the despairing way of looking at this is something like this. Oh gosh, relationships are ultimately unreliable. Job status is ultimately unreliable. Housing situations are ultimately unreliable. Uh, I can't rely on anything and then, oh, just going to be miserable. This is not the teaching. <laughs> You'll be pleased to hear. You'll be pleased to hear. The liberating teaching is that we never needed those things to be permanent, really reliable after all. That was a kind of illusion. And when we begin to let go of that illusion, there's a more basic sense of peace and joy and completion that is already here. And the more we're in contact with that, the more we can realize that, be in touch with it, then we can relate to all those other things in our lives from a happier place. We can, for instance, engage in relationships without making the other person somehow the meaning of life or the person who's going to complete me. We can relate to jobs, knowing that they change, they come and go, they'll inevitably have stresses and strains and joys and sorrows. But we're more at peace within that. So the second of these truths is uh, called craving, uh, or tanha in Pali. And notice it isn't desire. Some of the earlier translations of Buddhist teachings would use the word desire here, but craving has got a particular uh, focus to it. And the word that for me really captures it is the word unquenchable. Unquenchable. 
So the characteristic of craving is that it goes around in circles. Yeah? Circles of going round and round and round. So the circle goes a little bit like this. It's like, oh, it starts with this kind of belief. At the moment, I'm not enough. There's something fundamentally insufficient here, something fundamentally lacking and missing. We start with that view. And then it's like, oh, this is what's going to do it for me. What should we say? A juicy new job. My dream job. Wonderful. And then let's say we get the job. And it, yeah, this is great. And then, oh, my uh, friends look at me a bit differently now I've got this job and it's affected that. Or, oh, I didn't realize the manager was going to be like that. And, oh, I've done so well. They've doubled my workload. And, oh, maybe this wasn't quite what I wanted after all. So what do we do then? We go back on another circle. Oh, so it wasn't that job. It's this one. And we absorb into something else. Is this the thing that's going to really satisfy me? Yes, I've got it. And so then we go around in the circle. And the liberating teaching here is to see that there's something inevitable around that. If we get on something, we, sometimes we use this phrase, taking birth in it, holding on to, this is the thing. I mean, this is the movement. It's like, ah, this is the thing that's going to do it for me that that inevitably leads to a sense of uh, disappointment. Yeah. So when we've been through a few of these circles, we begin to understand the whole pattern more and more. Yeah. Understand the whole pattern more and more. And then we begin to let go of the sense of leaning on things, trying to squeeze out of things more than they can give us. We might do this with sense pleasures. Notice that on this retreat. Have you had particular dreams of the food or drink you're going to have when you leave the retreat? Ah, and in that moment, it's like, that, that's the secret to my well-being. I'm here at Guy House. All I've got to do is watch the breath and eat some vegetable soup. But tomorrow night, wow, pizza. And see what happens when you bite the pizza. You know, salty, fatty, tomato, olive, chewing, changing tastes. Does it bring the fulfillment that that moment of fantasy promises? You can let me know tomorrow night. Yeah? But this is what we do. It's like that feel. Ah. So we can do it with sense pleasures. We can do it with status and identity. It's a huge one. You know, can I be a person that somehow made it in life? And in our culture, that can be so strong, that sense of, you know, I've got to somehow get it together and have the right set of credentials and be somebody. But what does that depend on? It depends on the praise of others. It depends on all kinds of things, the particular perceptions we might have of ourselves, and they're all unstable. I mean, I really know this from doing this teaching role. Uh, you know, sometimes in the teaching role you can be praised. So thank you so much. That was really helpful. And uh, you know, sometimes people don't find it so helpful, or people look bored. Or <laughs> so if I take birth in, ah, oh, I'm a really good teacher. 
and try and make myself feel good out of that, then, you know, when you look bored or say, oh, didn't understand a word you said there, I experience a disillusionment, yeah? So it's the taking birth in the identity, the status, ah, this is it, ah, that sets us up for the disillusionment. And the wisdom is to know all of these things are wobbly, we might say, or impermanent, to give you the more technical term. But they, they wobble, they shift, they move. We can't hold on to them. And... Uh, the third of these teachings is the end of suffering. So this is called Nibbana in Pali. And uh, sometimes say uh, Nirvana in Sanskrit, but we could almost say Nirvana in English because it's become an English word now, right? And so just to reflect on this a little bit, um, when we think about Nibbana, in my understanding, it's very helpful to, yeah, to be quite nuanced in how we do that. So one tendency might be to think, well, that's nothing to do with us. If I sat in a cave for 13 years or if I lived in Tibet, I might know something about that. But, you know, I'm just trying to get through the day here. It's nothing to do with me. It's Nibbana, yeah? Um... Or the other thing is we might almost make it somehow too ordinary. I mean, it's a really profound concept of Buddhist teaching. And it would be a bold person who said, I've absolutely pinned it down, I know exactly what that means. That there's something in it that, uh, for me at least, is rather beautiful as a question. Well, what is this Nibbana, this end of suffering? Cessation of greed, hatred, and delusion. Well, what is that? And it's helpful as a way in to look at what are sometimes called more ordinary moments of Nibbana. Yeah, so notice, and we can all experience these things, ordinary moments in our lives when things cool down all down. So it might well be a moment of, say, listening to the birds and just being touched by the beauty of that. Seeing a beautiful uh, landscape. And in those moments, all of the stories about I'm the kind of person who's not quite good enough, who needs to get this to fill me up, who hasn't got enough, who's got to get it all together, who has to keep all these plates spinning, they soften. There's a moment of, ah, oh, that's just not arising or arising much more softly. And it's very peaceful. And more and more that's something we can really trust. Yeah, we can really trust that. You notice that it's so significant, the insight there. It's not because you've won anything, not because you've succeeded, not because somebody thinks you're the best thing since sliced bread, but it's a, a, a letting go. Happy for no reason, we might say. Notice those moments of happy for no reason. If you're happy for a reason and the reason is unstable, your happiness is unstable. You're happy because you've got a great job, but the condition of it being a great job 
is unstable. It may be for a bit, it may not be forever. So if we cling to it, then our happiness is unstable. So what is it in our practice that can begin to sense a peace and a joy, uh, a happiness for, for no reason? The Jai will take up the story. <laughs> So this is the first time that Jake and I have talked together and I'm just enjoying it so much. I don't know that I've uh, heard a Nietzsche or impermanence described as wobbliness before, but I find that really eminently helpful. Yeah. So if you're following along with the maths, you'll recognize that... Uh, Jake's spoken about the first three of the Four Noble Truths and so um, my intention is to reflect a little bit about the fourth one. So given this kind of existential predicament that we find ourselves in where we get caught in these loops of craving and the pursuit of a kind of sense of fulfillment and stability that's actually we're looking in the wrong places for and that actually what the Buddha was pointing to that uh, the real sense of peace and ease actually comes when we allow this craving uh, to fall away when we stop chasing after or living our lives in the pursuit of illusory happiness yeah, but okay that's great to understand but how how do we do all that so what what how do we live in the midst of that predicament and this is the 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 fourth and the fourth of the four noble truths is that there's a path there's a path through this predicament a path to the end of suffering or a path uh, that leads to nibbana and we could think of this, I suppose, as, you know, Jake mentioned the checklist, the five ways checklist for well-being. And the, the Buddha had his own checklist, if you like, which is the, the eight uh, limbs or the, the eight uh, aspects of what's called the eightfold noble path or the noble eightfold path. And noble is an interesting word you can kind of... There's lots of kind of stuff around uh, what this really means, but one of the ways we can think of it is a part, it's, an, it's a noble way to live. It's an ennobling way to live. It's the way that the noble ones, people who've really practiced and uh, realized the fruit of the Buddha's teaching, it's the way that they live and engage with life. And really it, it touches every aspect of our lives. So one of the one of the things I like about it, the Pali word for this path is the for path is patipada. Pada is the word for your feet, and pati means 
It's got lots of meanings, but in this context, it means again and again. So this is a path that's actually made by walking it. It's not something that's kind of laid out there, kind of all ready and waiting for us. We make the path through life by our walking of it. And patipada, you know, again, placing your feet again and again, it's a it's a step-by-step thing. So it's a kind of um, set of guidelines to how, for how to engage skillfully with life in a moment-by-moment. And in the classic teaching on the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha, the, he said that the, the first of the truths, the truth of Dukkha, is to be understood, to be fully understood. And that the origin of Dukkha, this craving, this uh, unquenchable thirst or unquenchable craving is to be abandoned. And that Nibbana or the end of craving, the cooling down of that, is to be seen for ourselves. And what he said about the, the path is that it's to be cultivated or developed. And the word cultivation is actually the word that he, he used for practice, including the practice of meditation altogether. And it's a really nice image because it, you know, it, it, when we think of cultivating a garden or cultivating crops, there's a sense in which they're things that we have to do, but we're also working with processes in nature. You know, there's many, many by far the majority of aspects of life and our lives are beyond our control and there's only certain amounts of places where we can interact we can plant seeds we can water them but their germination and growing up is you know it's a process that's out of our control and the path of cultivating the heart and mind is is really the same we're working we we have to work with natural processes And also it's worth reflecting that in our lives we're always, whether we think we're walking a path or not, we're always cultivating something. So any moment we may be just bumbling along doing our normal thing, but as we're doing that we're actually reinforcing certain patterns of, of habits, of behaviour, of speech, of thinking. And so this is where we actually have a choice, is in how we engage with this moment. Am I just going to unconsciously reinforce my habits? Or as we're developing here, this real sense of more and more awareness of what's actually happening right now. It's been interesting today talking to people who've done this retreat before and have been practicing for a little while and watching the development of their their practice and how they've been saying well they they seem to be much more sensitive to things not necessarily in a way that's comfortable you know but the the kind of awareness of what's going on within us and around us grows as we learn to attend to it and so then we have more choice in our lives about how we how we interact with the moment in a way that's onward leading that that leads us out of the confusion of not really understanding this teaching and into more clarity and into more freedom. So I'm just going to, you know, each of these steps of the path is really worth a whole Dharma talk and many of them are worth a whole retreat in themselves, but I just want to share a few reflections around um, these eight, eight aspects of the Buddha's checklist for well-being. Checklist seems a very, you know, not, maybe not quite 
grand and respectful enough term for it, but it's a, it's a contemporary way of thinking it. So the first, the first uh, thing, the, the kind of beginning of it all, is, is uh, what's called uh, wise or right understanding or view. Now, all these, all these eight limbs are prefixed with a word samma, which traditionally has been translated as right. But actually, it's more maybe a, a better translation would be appropriate, appropriate to this task of, of realizing freedom or a sense of uh, balanced, you know. So it's not right, right and wrong in the sense of, you know, now you're bad, now you're, now you're good, but actually is this the appropriate way if we're trying to cultivate, uh, is this the appropriate way to, to approach this aspect of life? So the first part is about understanding and really it's asking us to reflect on and understand the predicament we're in, these, these first three truths that Jake has described, so that we begin to uh, unwind from the habit of looking for happiness, gratification, lasting peace in places which aren't going to provide it. And then it also uh, points us very much to understanding that we live in a world of cause and effect, that the that our actions actually have an impact that they that they matter you know um, recognizing our interdependence with one another so that when we when we do something skillful there's a repercussion when we do something unskillful there's a repercussion so this is a basic understanding from which we can begin to engage with practice and of course, we ha- we have to move forward with a sense of faith. We we act on what we've understood of the teaching. So this is the, this path, although it offers eight eight linear steps. It's not really a line. It's kind of constantly circling round on itself. And as we practice more, the understanding deepens. We start with a kind of basic understanding, and we find our understanding growing. So we practice just as Jake was saying. We don't have to have really nailed in our mind and if we have nailed it in our mind it's not it because it's not a thought in the mind do we really fully understand what's meant by the end of suffering or nibbana in order to commit and to engage with the practice but what we can know is knowing knowing these mini nibbanas if you like that we experience we begin to get a sense of the direction so we're proceeding with understanding but also with faith from the beginning so that's the first step, is our understanding or our uh, view or outlook on life. And then the second step is our having intention, reflecting on our intention. And the intention that the Buddha praises, recommends, is an intention of non-greed, non-hatred and non-delusion. So... Uh, the, tent, the intention of harmlessness, if you like to put it in positive terms, and an intention towards awakening, towards clarity, and towards wisdom. And again, in our, in our mindfulness and meditation practice, we can reflect on when we, we find ourselves, sometimes we become more aware of our intention before we do something. He's saying it's not skillful, to, it's not going to produce a happy result to act on an unwholesome intention. But where the intention is wholesome, 
um, the result can be really positive. And then the next, the third, the third factor is uh, speech. So in this cause and effect world, uh, the actions of our body have an impact, both on our well-being and the well-being of others. The actions of our speech have an impact on our own well-being and the other and that of others, and also of our mind. And in a way, speech and the mind are very much interrelated because our thoughts shape and influence and create the world that we live in. So when we spoke about the, the precepts, these training rules last night, there was one about speech and that the basic um, invitation is to encouragement is to refrain from false speech. But uh, it's also elaborated as refraining from unkind speech or untimely speech as well um, and and also from uh, kind of idle gossip and so forth so there's a whole sort of elaboration of the the um, invitation to be aware of our speech habits and this is a one of the areas of practice which I think is really really rich and fruitful to engage with I think we could use a whole retreat just to explore speech it's really true that um, thoughts, uh, speech patterns and so on shape the world that we live in. And I've been really reflecting on that. You know, I said I've just been on, on a silent retreat for a month. And when your mind gets really quiet and there's not external talking going on much, and I wasn't, wasn't going to many talks while I was on the retreat and things, so it was really a lot of time with my own mind. And I became very, very conscious more than usual of the way that I talked to myself. And I was also reflecting on how I'm, I'm very, I was very aware at a certain point in my life of the way I started talking about things, particularly when I was kind of around doing sixth form and going to university. And I wasn't kind of aware of it in a context of Dharma practice at all, but just noticing in my life how I became somehow much more cynical about stuff. Like there was such a pressure to manifest as a clever and witty person that I would find myself, you know, being quite cynical and trying to be clever and often saying witty things that were not particularly kind of they're kind of sharp you know there's that way of like that the often comedians use this and things but speech isn't particularly kind but it's kind of clever and entertaining and actually sort of almost seeing that process and those habits forming in my own mind but not thinking anything very much of them and just recently more recently in my practice just noticing how those kinds of speech patterns actually impact my world. So one of the things coming off my retreat was uh, really kind of getting, beginning to notice this creeping anxiety about all the things I'd have to do when I finish this lovely peaceful month of silence with just imagine all this freedom from having to worry about the to-do list for a whole month and then knowing that I was going to have a fairly busy time immediately and finding myself saying to myself, you're going to have to hit the ground running and then just thinking, actually, I'm not hitting the ground. 
I'm going home and I'm re-engaging with my friends, with my family, with my work commitments and things. And I'm in, my intention is to do that in a measured, peaceful way with as little impact to my well-being as possible. But there's whole, this whole framing of it, of using a concept of hitting the ground running that's setting me up with a sense of you know, kind of tension, uh, distress, anxiety around it. And that's such a trivial thing, but we endlessly kind of manufacturing these kinds of worlds for ourselves. So the speech thing can get more and more and more refined. And, you know, we know, I noticed like, so another thing was doing having a month away from the media and not watching the news and being aware both in my own mind and then when you come back and you re-engage with the media how much exaggeration and catastrophizing of life goes on that then just starts to form the mental climate that we live in and it's really worth just noticing that being aware of it and thinking am I going to feed that or not so this is a whole big area of exploration that really got time to uh, unpack in detail but I really write this could be a whole practice for you for a whole year or more just bringing attention to how you use speech and how you're impacted by speech so that's uh, the fourth limb and the for the third limb only so, and the fourth is action, so the actions we undertake uh, with our body, which often flow from the patterns, the beliefs in our mind. And we looked at that last night in terms of the, the precepts and the training rules and uh, different ways of refraining from causing harm, so not, not harming life and also not, not taking what's not given, not exploiting people, and for our own gratification through our sexuality and so on. So that we talked about refraining from doing certain things last night, but there's also a positive aspect to all of these. So, you know, as well as um, cultivating a sense of harmlessness, we can also develop a sense of kindness and caring. We can, as well as developing a sense of contentment, we can develop a sense of generosity. And you can notice, you know, if you do something generous or kind what's the after effect not only for others but also in your own how do you feel when when you've done something generous or kind you know it brightens it gladdens the mind brings a sense of peacefulness to the mind and this is where uh, we can uh, uh, the rest of the the the, the practice uh, unfolds with more ease there's more clarity in a happy and peaceful mind than there is in a confused or remorseful one. So the the fifth step is really closely related to this, and this is about livelihood. You know, how do we choose to um, make our way in the world to provide for our own needs and provide for other people's? So we we. Are invited to really consider the impact of how how we make our living. In the Buddha's time, there was uh, the the, the um, suggestions are you know to 
not uh, do something that exploits or harms living beings. So not to make a living out of out of killing of of killing animals, for example. Uh, not to make a living out of uh, trading in weapons or trading in harmful substances. And also one that's quite interests me about not um, piling gain on gain. So not living life in a way that's about making a profit for the sake of making a profit. That's how I understand that. Um, that we, we reflect. It's, it's, it's absolutely fine. There are many examples in the teachings of people who were very successful in a worldly sense. But that success should be gained through something that's actually... Um, creating well-being rather than harm in society. So we can we can reflect on just on the the impact of you know what certain certain industries and occupations have in the world. So I think about things like advertising and so on and you know I had lots of friends actually and as a student who were going into advertising and there's a there's a kind of buzz to the creativity of what you're doing and and uh, ways of using skills in sharing information with people but there's also lots of ways in which we're kind of using it to manipulate people to want things they don't want or to become you know more dissatisfied and more neurotic about their lives and this is something that we really if we want to live with a sense of um, confidence and ease about what we're doing that we really need to reflect on. So we're just invited to attend to this aspect of our life. So I said, uh, our view or understanding, our speech, our, our intention, speech, action and livelihood. And there are three left which move into the domain of developing the mind, which is really what we're, we're doing here on retreat. So the sixth one is uh, right or wise effort. We make a lot of effort in our lives, don't we? To do what we think we need to do, to get what we think we need to get. Some of it's advancing our happiness and some of it isn't really. So where do we apply effort in a way that it's not squandered? And the, the basic instruction for this is very simple. It's like we apply our effort to cultivate and develop beneficial wholesome states of mind and to uh, so to 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 bring them forth and to keep developing them so for example like this the state of mind of generosity contentment clarity and we apply our effort to abandon and restrain and stop feeding the attitudes of mind that are harmful so to to not to uh, keep perpetuating, increasing, for example, sense of ill will towards towards someone, something. We can do things that really feed a sense of resentment that uh, aren't skillful. It doesn't mean that we have to be abandon our discernment and notice, you know, things that are not to be associated with things that are to be associated with, but. Uh, we don't want to keep feeding the habits of mind that keep us um, really locked in a sense of dissatisfaction, craving. Okay. 
And there's also a consequence, isn't there, to making no effort at all. She's just kind of slobbing out and letting life take its own course because, as I said before, we are actually willy-nilly always cultivating something. So if we're just kind of cruising along on habit, unless we're very fortunate and we're blessed with only beneficial habits, you know, that's also not necessarily going to have a good result. So it's it's inevitable that we need to make some sort of effort in life. So uh, where are we going to apply our effort two more so the seventh is mindfulness which we're all doing here you know none of this can be applied without actually a clear knowing of what's going on in the present moment and again mindfulness is a huge topic worthy of a whole retreat of its own or many retreats of its own and I'd just like to highlight two aspects of it so one is uh being aware moment to moment what we're actually experiencing but it also includes a sense of remembering remembering the context remembering the teachings uh, remembering what's what's skillful and what's unskillful so it's not just a kind of bare experience of awareness but it's it's kind of having a context for what's arising and remembering what's important remembering our intention remembering what matters so mindfulness uh, the awareness that we call mindfulness it has a a flavor of um, caring and discernment within it and so one of its functions is actually to protect these hearts and minds from uh, the uh, from uh, the unskillful engagement with what whatever um, is arising, and then the last and last and not least aspect of the path is uh, samadhi or collectedness and composure of mind sometimes more traditionally translated as concentration but that can really give us a sense of actually we've got to really concentrate and focus very hard on something which is uh, a kind of narrowing down of awareness but what we're really talking about is what we've been again exploring together today about how you know so often our mind is running running on one track that's uh, uh, somewhere in the past somewhere in the future somewhere far away and the 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 actual experience we're having is right here and how do we bring those things together so that the the mind is really um, embedded in our present moment experience that, that the energy of the mind is available uh, here and now and in the sense of as the mind settles with the body as the mind comes to rest in in our present moment experience there's so much more clarity and wisdom available to actually see well what's going on what are the consequences of what's happening and what's the most uh, appropriate way to engage with it and as we do that our understanding grows so this this whole process cycles around on itself yeah So understanding, intention, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration or composure. 
And that can sound like an awful lot of things to have to do and an awful lot of things to have to remember. But it all comes back to actually what's the, what's the skillful next step to take in relation to what I'm experiencing. This is a step-by-step path. We're not doing uh, all of these things all at once in every moment. And in a sense, it's not just a circular thing, but it's a holographic thing. When we're practicing one aspect of this, all the others are implicitly coming online as well. So it's not not that we need to get, uh, when I say that every moment, every moment matters and in every moment we're cultivating something, it's not to get stressed or worried about that because it's just the same as with the the teaching on dukkha is that we can feel oh this is you know just everything's just suffering and what's the point of it all or we can see actually there's a the point of this is that there's a there's an alternative there's a way out of this and similarly with you know this invitation to cultivate in every moment is every moment contains within it the seeds and the possibility of freedom so it's not it's not to uh, make us uptight or neurotic but actually to point to uh, these the four truths are often framed as a kind of um, a, a remedy or a cure for our existential problems that there's a there's a diagnosis and there's a treatment and there's a, a, um, a cure for this, and that this is the so this is the skillful um, medicine, if you like, for uh, for the affliction that that we encounter. And as we keep engaging with this path, we find that uh, the levels of greed, the levels of craving, the levels of confusion. The sense of that sense of an isolated me kind of struggling start to diminish, and the feelings of contentment, of abundance, of kindness actually start to increase. And we don't have to, you know, judge how far we are on this. We don't know, you know when which step is going to be the last step on step on our paths i remember you know when i was thinking as a young person about what to do with my life and people would say to me what do you want to do with your life i remember having conversations with my mother was saying i just want to be happy and she'd say well that's not possible she wasn't a buddhist she isn't a buddhist and i say that can't be true that can't be true but also and at those times thinking well actually if one person if the net amount of happiness in the world increases as the consequence of my life then my life will have been worth living and I just shared that with a friend the other day and she told me something that um, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, said that that uh, he would feel satisfied if one person in the world could breathe a little easier because he'd lived and when we walk this path we find that we enable uh, not only ourselves but other people to breathe more easily 
that the net amount of happiness will increase. So this is a really worthwhile thing to keep committing to and to keep exploring and investigating in our lives. So thank you for your listening and your attention. Let's just have a quiet moment together before we do some walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.